Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. I spent some time this week looking for a very specific piece of antiquity. Uh, an antique item, if you will. And if you're over 40, it's something that every single one of us owned. In fact, it's something that over the course of our lives, we owned many of. It was big, it was heavy, it took up a bunch of space in our house, and yet we had a few of them cluttered around, always in the way, or never able to find them when we needed to. The other thing about this item that I was looking for is if you were to show it uh, to uh, uh, somebody from Generation Alpha, they would be amazed that this thing ever existed. They wouldn't have a category for it at all. And yet every single household in America, every single business in America had one of these. And it would stagger the mind of all the tablet kids. I'm, of course, talking about a phone book. The first phone book was published in 1878 in New Haven, Connecticut. It contained 50 numbers, and it fit on one piece of cardboard because that was every phone in all of New Haven, Connecticut. And then from that little one sheet with everybody in New Haven's number to the giant yellow pages that were always like on top of like the office desk if you had one at your house or wherever you might have stashed it, every single house in America had a ton of these. But then the internet comes along and it steals all the business because everybody under the age of 40 goes, what do I need a phone book for? I've got it. I've got everything I need right here. I can tell you how good of a Chinese restaurant you're ordering from just by looking right here. It's all right. You just, all I need is this. In fact, as smartphones came to dominate our society, many cities actually made it illegal to put out phone books. And so they sort of overnight between 2007 and 2014, with the rise of the smartphone, the phone book became absolutely irrelevant and worthless. This morning, as we look at a psalm together, this psalm is going to tell us about something that should be irrelevant and useless for us, but in many of our lives, it's not. The psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 115, contrast uh, the God of the Bible with the idols of the people who lived around the people of God. The psalmist wants everybody to see that the gods that these other people worship are worthless. And even more than that, when you worship these idols, these other gods, it actually deforms you. It dehumanizes you. And it would be easy for us to clap our hands and pat ourselves on the back and say, ah, yes, well, I'm glad that I don't worship the wrong gods. I worship the true gods and everything is fine with me. Justin, talk to somebody else. But the writer has written this psalm in such a way that he wants us to examine ourselves, to ask where are we worshiping another god, the gods other than the true god of the covenant. And as we talk about often here at City Church, even those of us who are Christians, we turn our attention to lesser gods, to lesser things. We give our hearts to them. And so our trust in idols is an escape. It's an escape from the otherness of God, from the, the, to be honest, strangeness of the God that we worship. And one of the reasons why they distract us in this way is that idols 
Idols don't take the same level of faith in the unseen that we need to have. In order to believe in God, the God of the Bible, we have to believe that something that we cannot see is truer than everything that our eyes tell us. And since we can't see God, we're tempted to worship the things that we can see will make a tangible difference in our lives. But when we turn our focus to these things, when we elevate these things, no matter what they are, into an ultimate position of influence in our life, the tragic happens. We're misshapen. We're actually damaged by them. And it leads us further and further away who God has made us to be. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand as I read God's word to us. It's Psalm 115. It'll be on the screen behind me. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the great and the small. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. The psalmist opens this poem up with a quick one-two punch. It's as if he was Jose Ramirez throwing punches on the baseball field. That's a joke for baseball fans. I will account it to my baseball joke quota, and we will move on from there. But it's very punchy at the very beginning of this psalm. It's quick. He gets right into it because he repeats the phrase, not to us. Not to us, O Lord, should the glory be given, because immediately when we begin to discuss the unseen, he knows how quickly we are to want to accumulate glory for ourselves. We want to be the best. We want to be renowned and known for who we are. But part of who we are made to be, part of who we are as Christians, is being humbled, humbled enough to know that it doesn't matter how well-known we are. It matters that we are known by God. This world is a system built to bring glory to its maker, not to us, the creatures. But we get that twisted. We don't always live like that. We don't always recognize that. And so he quickly follows up saying, not to us, not to us, O Lord, by asking that God would show his steadfast faithfulness, that God would show his steadfast love. Here we are again, 
Uh, Every week in the summer, as we look at Psalms, we find this word, this steadfast love. If you heard me say it, if you know one Hebrew word, this is the one to know. It's hesed. It's God's covenant love. And what's interesting about Psalm 115 is there's no heading. There's no sort of glossy details that tell us, what is this about? When did somebody write this? Who wrote this? We don't get any details. And so we have to sort of puzzle it out and picture it together through the words that we find ourselves. And it seems like that the psalmist is writing this in the face of being taunted, in the face of the people around them mocking their God. And so in the face of this mockery and taunting, the psalmist immediately asks that God would show himself to be faithful to his people, that God would not let them down. And so that he would get the glory that his name deserves. And he says that this is the main point of their mockery. The main idea that all of these nations are mocking the people of Israel about, they're asking them, where is your God? Now, it might be easy for us to sort of think of that in the the Black Panther, is this your king? Where is your king now? sort of way of thinking about it, but that's not actually what's being asked here. There's actually an entire another psalm that's all about where is your God now? The question that these ancient Near Eastern nations are asking the people of Israel is is a quite literal question. Where is your God? We know where our gods live. We can go to the temple of Dagon. And when you go to the temple of the Philistine god Dagon, there's a statue. There he is. If you go to Babylon and go to the temple of Marduk, you can find where that god is. We know where all of these gods are because they have statues. But this is what was made different by the people of Israel. See, God in the second commandment had explicitly commanded them not to make an image of him. If you're familiar with the Bible and know the story of the golden calf, that was the big problem. I mean, there was like 17 problems in that story. But one of the biggest ones is they said, this is the God who led us out of the land of Egypt. And they made a bull. And God said, no, no, no. we're not making images. We're not drawing pictures. We're not going to have an image of me. It's explicitly forgiven. And yet they stood apart. So this, the people are asking a very literal question. Where, where is your God? We can't, we don't see him. We don't know about him. And so the God of the Bible answers. He's different. He's just different than these gods because our God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. Just because we don't have a statue doesn't mean our God is fake. In fact, we're going to see the opposite in just a second. The psalmist is making an incredibly bold statement of belief. Even though we can't see God, we believe in him. Even though it seems that he is distant or absent, we still trust in him and trust that he is present and shaping all of human history. Now, let's be honest. This is still a struggle for us today. How many of us wish we could see and hear God in a tangible way? How many of you have sat across a table from me, whether it's at Green Bench or Intermezzo or somewhere else, and said to me, Justin, I wish God would just tell me exactly what to do. If you've ever felt like you're alone and sitting across a table and telling me that, you are not. There are so many others, myself included, that have said that. But the difficulty, the the difficulty of believing in God is that we aren't normally going to get a tangible sign of exactly what to do. We're not going to get a sky banner coming across with a plane 
and it's going to tell us, take the job, buy the house, make this major life decision. We, we just are not going to normally get that. And so we have to live by faith. We have to live believing that God wants the good for us in our lives. And no matter what decision we make, if we make it to the best of our ability in faith, that he is going to bless it. But that trusting in that is so hard. I know because that's hard for me as well. I just want to walk outside after I pray and the clouds to kind of part into letters that say, everything you ask me for is done. I want that. I know you want that too. I know that all of us wish for that tangibleness, and yet God just doesn't follow our whims like that. God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. But as we read the Bible, what we see is that what he pleases is to do what is best for his glory and for us. And so the psalmist contrasts this invisible, all-powerful God with the gods of the other nations, the ones with statues. And when he does it, he's, he's pretty harsh. He's like sarcastic. You know, they have, they have hands. What are they touching? They have eyes. What do they see? They have ears that don't hear anything. He sort of goes through that rapid fire list of all the things that they can't do. And what's interesting about us as humans is that for all of the things that we are so creative about, when it comes to creating gods, we are just so wildly unimaginative. Because when we think about gods, oftentimes the way we think about it is us, but bigger. Us, but with superpowers. You know, Iron Man, or pick your sort of favorite superhero, Superman. When we think about gods, oftentimes all it is, is just an enhanced version of us as humans. And it shows an absolutely terrible lack of imagination. You even look at these gods like Baal and Asher or whatever these ancient Near Eastern gods were. And oftentimes they were humanoid figures. We could not imagine something that would rule the world that wasn't human-ish at least. And so he says, no, they actually were built by people. That God, Marduk, that you're worshiping, that Ashtarapol that you're going and saying is a God, somebody made it. A human literally made it. And he, he's exposing how ridiculous it is to worship these gods. Now, we're in a movie theater. We have LED lighting. We are, we are modern people. It would be easy for us to just sort of brush this off and go, ah, well, we don't have idols anymore, and, you know, and do that. And of course, you've heard me say before that that's not true, but I want to I show a vivid picture of the way that we have actually quite literal idols still. Um, if you were to go to New York City, outside of Wall Street, you will find a two-ton bronze bull. Huge. Right outside the market. Right there for everybody to see a bronze, not, no longer a calf. <laughs> it's a symbol of economic prosperity. It's literally an idol. And then in 2017, they put up another statue right in front of it. You may have seen it's the, it's the defiant and fearless girl. And what I didn't realize, I didn't realize this about either of these things, that actually the city of New York never commissioned the giant bronze bull that an artist just made it and as a like art project, set it up in the middle of the night in the city. And the city was like, 
well, no, we, we kind of like it. We'll issue a temporary permit and just never do anything about it. And then they set up the little girl, and they're like, yeah, actually, we're going to have to move her because the little girl, the fearless little girl, was actually a, a hedge fund run by women um, that was advertising for themselves, which makes it seem like, which kind of cheapens it a bit. But then, then they moved the little girl, and a few years later, a statue of the gorilla Harambe showed up. And so there was Harambe defiantly looking down. And the funny thing about all of these things, about the bull, the girl, Harambe, is they were all symbols of something else. The bull, economic prosperity. The girl, the empowerment of those who have been overlooked. Harambe, I guess the best we can call it is ecology or jokes. I'm not, <laughs> that one's tough. But in each one of these cases, we have something good. Success is not a problem. God does not dislike rich people, but he dislikes when we make money an ultimate thing. God is for the overlooked and those who are downtrodden being lifted up. He says it again and again. But when that becomes our ultimate and sole goal, it becomes a problem. God is in favor of ecology. He literally invented it. But when that becomes our sole religious belief, when the, the tables get flipped and a, and a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that's when we have a problem. And how many of us? I mean, think about the phrase, he sacrificed his family for his career success. That's not an uncommon phrase for us to hear, but the language of that is explicitly religious, sacrifice. And we have this trouble where we want to make good things into ultimate things. And so our struggle with idolatry is very similar to the ancient Near East. But the psalmist says something, he kind of saves his best shot for last, because as he finishes describing these idols that can't do anything, he says that any time you make something the foremost part of your life, the most important thing to you, you will become what you worship. The thing that you place the greatest priority on in your life will become the de defining aspect of your reality. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're worshiping anything else, he describes a chain. It begins with desire. What we want is what we make our gods to be. And so if we want to be successful, we'll make money or power our God. You'll create it in, in the image that you imagine and sacrifice to it to get what you want. And that will ultimately form your life. That will ultimately set the direction of your life. But it's not just money. It's not just success. Think about all the other things that we elevate to ultimate priority. How about political power or the safety of our family or just living a life that is easy and pleasurable and uninterrupted? These things follow that same chain that our desires lead to our worship and culminate in what we are formed to be. We worship what we desire, and our worship always deforms us unless it is worshiping the God of the Bible, because we weren't made to worship anything but him. And that's what the psalm, or, psalmist urges us to do in the last portion of the psalm. As he sort of finishes up, it had that repetitive uh, phrase. In fact, the, it seems like this was written as a, as a back and forth liturgy, as a call and response. Bless the Lord, O you house of Aaron. He is our shield and our defender. It sort of had that congregational back and forth. And that's the big idea. Three times he says, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in the things that deform you. Trust 
in the Lord, the God of the universe, who made all things seen and unseen, that God remembers you. He blesses you. And when we try, when we think about it, we want to have faith in him, but it's difficult. It's hard, right? First, because of what we talked about before, that he's unseen. But secondly, it's hard to put our trust in something that we can't see. We can't trust in something without organizing our life around its truth. And when you add to the fact that God is unseen, that he's asking us to organize our lives, our finances, our families, when he's asking us to organize everything about our lives, to shift it around, to point in the direction that he calls us to, we know that it's hard. Our hopes and our dreams are hard to rest on something we can't see. I know, I know what $10,000 would do for my family. I know with the certainty that all my kids would get good college degrees and turn out to be nice dudes. If I was guaranteed that, I know what that would do in my life. If I knew guaranteed whatever it is that I wanted the most would happen, if I could guarantee that, I'd be all on board because I could, I could touch it. I could see it. I could, I could go in that direction. But when I have to imagine something that I can't see, when I have to put trust in something that I can't see, it is just hard. But trusting in the unseen God is exactly the hard thing that we're all called to. He really does have our best in mind. We just don't always know what the best is for us. And so when things don't go to plan, we get nervous and we look for something tangible to fix it. So in many ways, this psalm is asking us to live in that tension, to live with the reality that God is in sovereign control of everything that comes into our lives and that he's working it ultimately, as the book of Romans says, to our good. So when we have to live only being able to see as much as we can of God's work in hindsight. How many times have you been able to see God do something in your life only by reflecting on it days, weeks, years later? And yet when we look back, we can see that. And that's why we need to share that with one another. We encourage one another that you can't see right now maybe what God is doing, but we share stories of what God has done. Just like Israel was to remember the stories of of the Exodus, of the Passover, we're trying to remember so we can live in the tension of putting our full trust in an unseen God. It's interesting that they're called to remember what God has done, because there's one other thing I want to point out about this psalm. In the Jewish sort of history of the year, they had this holiday of Passover each year. And at Passover, they would read Psalms 113, 114, and 115. They would read 113 and 14 before the meal, And then they would read this psalm, the psalm that we just read, after the dinner, after they ate the Passover meal altogether. That was sort of the the habit that Jews were were doing in the early um, first century. Which means that in Matthew 26, when Jesus has Passover dinner, the Last Supper with his disciples, it says that after they had eaten the meal, they sang a song, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the song. 
This is the song that Jesus and his disciples sang together after the Last Supper, which sharpens into view in a really great way. Where is your God? Here he is about to give up his life for people who are going to betray him. Where is your God? Here he is. Come in the flesh, not to destroy his enemies and wreck the Roman empire, but to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Where is your God? He died on the cross for three days away in the tomb and now is ascended to the right hand of the father where he does what he pleases. The way that that answer, that question of this psalm is answered is ultimately in the person of Jesus. Where is your God? Let me show you Jesus. This is what he does. This is what he has done for us. Beloved, we all worship things that we shouldn't, myself included. But when we're asked where our God is, we can trust in the cross securing our forgiveness. We can trust that he has done it for us. So let's enjoy the beauty of God in our story the story of a God who doesn't demand that we sacrifice, but instead offers himself as a sacrifice for us. Let's trust in the goodness that made that sacrifice possible is the same goodness that will follow us all the days of our lives. Let's put our trust in him, even though we can't see him. Let's pray. God in heaven, we confess that so often we want to be able to see you and hear you in audible and tangible ways. And yet you are the invisible God, the God who cannot be seen. And yet you are clearly at work as you sit in heaven doing as you please, as you are ordering the world around us. Jesus, would you give us the faith to see the unseen things that you are doing? Would you give us the eyes to believe in the things that we can't see? And as we do that, would you help us to trust more and more in you? In Christ's name, amen.